I mean, we forget this, but like, like it wasn't just trots becoming neoconservatives. It was also like Maoist in California becoming neoliberal Democratic mayors. It's been a little while since I've seen you, since I talked to you been, last. Yeah. Um, I understand that the Varn vlog is doing really well. It's growing pretty quickly now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm irritated by that, but go, <laughs> go keep going. That's fine. I know you don't need me. Um. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So you were nice enough to come back on and uh, help me get some clicks and and talk about the Matt Chrisman. Yeah. Uh, interview. Now, uh, did you already make a video on your own about? I made it and pulled it down. Uh, oh, really? Somewhat, okay. Somewhat controversially, uh, I lost. It was a stream, not a video, and I lost patience with a bunch of different kinds of streamers all at once. So I got hit up by DSA defenders. I got hit up by Infrahas people. I got hit up by all these different, like largely internet-based factions, and. I uh, got overwhelmed, got angry, uh, and uh, cut the stream <laughs> with the phrase, Jesus Christ, you're a bunch of subcultural weirdos. Click. <laughs> um, uh -huh. And so, and then I, so that is, yeah, that's no longer easily findable. I mean, it, it, the video still exists. If you've got a link to it, you can find it, but it's unlisted now. It's unlisted. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, well, seems like you haven't changed much. Uh, you know, I, when you and I used to do live streams, I had to always keep you in check, and I had my hand on the end <laughs> broadcast button. Right. <laughs> right, as opposed to where I can just be like, screw you guys, I'm yeah, in charge right. now. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Uh, so, so okay, well, what did you say – about the Christman interview that set off all these little internet factions, or was it not about? It the... wasn't by that point. It wasn't about the Christman interview, except that uh, I got the, the one thing I would say. I got a lot of pushback where people were like, "Well, you're bringing up all this trivia about the workers' movement um, for why we can't do things now." And I'm like, "No, I'm bringing up the history of the workers' movement. I'm bringing up the stuff that Christman is hinting at, um, are kind of vaguely outlining." So that you understand um, what you were actually up against the entire time and in denial about. Um, and so give me an example. So the well, I went that, through like, the. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, OK. So why what happened to the workers movement like in the 19 during the end of the post-war social compact? Right. And I just went through and started listing them because there, there's more than one. One is the working class sent his kids to college. And so the college was a scene to be the revolutionary subject. But this was it had to do with policy about educating about 40% of the workforce after World War II. Two, this was actually encouraged by factory people because they wanted people to get a lot of people in the unions didn't think the factory jobs were great and didn't think they were going to continue forever. So wait, let me just ask. You're talking about... Like the 50s? I, like, uh, yeah, I, I trace things all, like I trace what happened in 2020 all mm. the way back to the 50s. Yeah, that's fine. But so because um, I think of the turn to the students as a revolutionary subject, something that happened in the 60s with the new left. But the, the new left goes back to the starts in the 50s. Right. But, I mean, the leaders of the new left are actually are actually like older lost generation people. They're not even baby boomers. Right. Um, the, the issue was that, that, that thing in 68 begins as policy in 1959. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and if you go to, if you just think about, um, France, mm -hmm. the, 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 the 1968 mm -hmm. protests in May, May of 1968 in Paris, um, it is clear that the, and it's not a matter of some left organizations deciding, but it, it, it is actually happening that the working class has being is being put through university and new right. institutions are forming. Uh, Nanterre was a relatively young university built on an American model to educate the factory workers, kids. Right. So, and that is where the 
protests on the student side started before it moved to, to the Sorbonne and to the center of Paris. Um, so, I mean, you're not wrong there, but I just think of that as like. It's one of about, about 85 things, though. I understand. I like, but I just think of that as not a turn towards students as a new revolutionary subject, but rather a new problem for workers to try to overcome and, and deal with was well, the we, we view it that way. Mm -hmm. But the way the writers at the time, I mean, um, like we're, we're framing it was that the student due to the, due to both their leisure time and their prior position in the working class and their skill set would get you out of the whole Vanguard problem where you needed an intellectual class. that was largely petite bourgeois oh, to come right. in and merge. Okay. And so there was a whole theoretical apparatus around this. In retrospect, we can clearly see, actually, it was just, it was actually a change in the working class itself, um, where the division between blue and white collar work was was pushed downward over a period of about 30 years. Um, Did you see the essay that um, Clint Montgomery wrote that I just recently put up about um, progressive education? Uh, no. Okay. Cause that came up uh, right after Christman's interview and, uh, we put that out and, um, he outlines how like Dewey and the progressives, um, had a different vision of what education was about. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I just think that if you're, if you're looking for a vanguard for the proletarian revolution, you can't look to the American model of education to produce it. Right. Because it was the, the meta American model of education was about training people to cope with the basic, you know, basically the disruption or crisis of society. Well, yeah. And Dewey were. was reconciled with the center and even somewhat the right by the 1940s. And people don't talk about this when they talk about progressive education. Like he right. he was told by World War Two and he was totally, for example, alongside most of the pro-war movement. And. If you look at progressive educational reforms and you talk about the factory and you hear this jargon, at least you did 10 years ago, and like even right wing uh, educational reforms issues like, oh, it's based on the factory model. Um, and it was and it was and Dewey like made it a more interactive, practical version of that, as opposed to the Prussian military system that we had originally adopted as a model for our schooling. Mm -hmm. But um that it was still about actually training certain kinds of workers for certain kinds of immediately available jobs, which is not a particularly liberatory project. But the other thing that happened that I was pointing out is like the industrial unions declined partly because industry in purely Marxist terms, and I'm going to say it Marxist terms for, for you, is the socially necessary labor time decreased a ton due to development of technology. And because of that, you needed less and less people in the factory to operate it. And mm. then you also had, you got hit by outsourcing later, but actually automation was the driving factor here. And so mm. it was pushing more and more people out and breaking up the factory system. And no one could figure out how you deal with, with workers in the service sector who were franchised because the number of people you had to negotiate with went up exponentially on how you could even get a basic contract. Mm -hmm. um and so the franchise model which really takes off too really does that then you have rapid deindustrialization all right and you have the fact that the unions themselves are increasingly staffed by non-workers by by professional staffers who are paid sometimes even out of stock options and whose primary job is lobbying almost solely the Democrats with the exception of very few craft unions. Um, and so there was nothing like, even when they, even with like the, the, the RCP or the SWP US, like the trots and the malice tried to go into the factories and do stuff. The factories were already declining by that point anyway. Mm -hmm. So this all leads up to now. You can't also just blame neoliberalism for this because this goes back to the 50s yeah. yeah 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 i mean um when you start talking about this i thought immediately of um kirk vonnegut's mm -hmm. book player piano mm -hmm. 
which was written in 19 or published in 1952. And it was about a dystopian future where um, automation is doing the majority of the work and people are kind of listless and, and uh, it's been a long time since I've read it, but it, I recall that people weren't sure who they were, didn't know what to do with themselves w without work um, in the novel. But the point was that it, it, he, that sparked his imagination was working for General Electric mm -hmm. um, and seeing the amount of automation that was already coming in and the, the amount of workers who are displaced by automation as early as 1952. I was reading uh, Goodbye to the Working Class, which was by a Euro-communist named uh, Andre Gortz, um, uh, which is a book that infuriates me, but it does make some interesting observations. And it talks about the automization of the workforce before we even had like cybernetic computer technology. So people who think that this is a recent problem are wrong. This has right. been the this has been the second half of the 20th century. Um, and you know, people who would say, well, yeah, this would be a good thing. It would be a good thing under socialist hands, but you know, under capitalist hands, what it actually does is is weaken your your negotiation power. Mm. Um, so this happens. There's a crisis of profitability in the 70s, which we've talked tons about. We don't have to go back into that. Right. Um, the 80s restores that on paper mm -hmm. um, with some actual revision, but a lot of like a lot of the policies, and we're, we, we're going to talk about the future because it's going to be related. Because mm -hmm. I'm even more pessimistic than Christman about a few things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the Volcker shock shocks it. And actually, what it does is it makes it easy to finally put the nail in the coffin of a lot of the, of the non-government sector unions and some of the government sector unions, like Reagan's mm -hmm. fight with the air traffic controllers. Mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't actually reduce inflation for three to five years. Mm -hmm. Like right. that, which is something that a lot of people miss. Like the Volcker shock did not lead to a, a decrease. It never led to a total uh, removal of inflation. You never had a deflationary economy, mm -hmm. but over a course of about five years, it dropped inflation from like, I think like 12% down to like four or three. And yeah. that's pretty much where we stayed until 2007, 2008, um, where they tried to raise the interest rate again. And then and then all the bad junk bonds became apparent. <laughs> and um, I'm suspecting that we're going to see that with all this tech rentier stuff as soon as the interest rate goes up starting in March. Um, mm -hmm. So so all these things happen. There's a bunch of other stuff that happened, too. We haven't got into the weirdness about black nationalism divorcing itself from the Communist Party in the 60s for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um the Communist Party's own like refusal to break with the Democrats until literally probably like last year, um, and it's they did, huh? The the kind of yeah, the CP has mostly broke finally with with the Dems. I think partly to distinguish itself from the DSA. So, yeah, like a branding exercise, right? Um, so, and I'm sure there's people who are in the CP will get mad at me for that. They've also started doing worker outreach in a real way, and then they have their own internal factions and internet Twitter wars. Mm -hmm. But this all happened. Now, conversely, um, at the same time, we, we've been worried. You and I have both been worried for a long time about the fact that the left, uh, that the utopian notions of the left were giving way to more methodological status and reformist notions, whether people admitted it or not, right? Um, under the guise of organization. And they were trying to like, we're not going to try to do the Green Party thing again. We're going to try to split the Democratic Party. And, you know, and even I remember laughing at the Alckmin plan because I'm like, why on earth would they ever allow you to do that? The moment you try to do that, the, the very cadres that you're getting in are going to betray you for the Democrats, because the Democrats have more money and resources, frankly. Mm. Um, and instead of what will happen is eventually when when this whole Bernie thing fails or doesn't, you're going to, if particularly if it fails, either in not being able to get an agenda through if he became president or in losing um, the general election, what would happen is you'd be pulled back into the Democratic audit. Um, 
the reasons why I have for that, and I think this makes people un more uncomfortable, is I actually also studied the dissonant right. And the dissonant right, whether it's the alt-right or whatever, does better in democratic years. It has the appearance of movement. Um, it's only like 2% of 10% of the population who are really highly invested in that. And, and even that, like it's a very small minority of a large minority that's still not even like, like I said, no more than 10% of the population, um, according to pupil after pupil on this, uh, that engages in this. However, the impetus online, and this is where Chrisman is onto something, but he didn't fully articulate it. The emphasis online gives voice to the to the most loud and thus most probably marginalized even within those coalitions factions, and it isn't it doesn't have much to do with class. Like the it does it is a democratizer now that people from different classes can actually participate in this conversation. But if you mm -hmm. like track what class goes where, for example, progressives are the richest and rightest sub demographic of the. Of the Did Democrat. you say the richest and rightest or whitest? Or whitest, whitest, whitest. Yeah. Even though they're the most concerned about racial issues, mm -hmm. um, uh, and they're actually even whiter than the conservative than the most conservative faction on the other side, um, according to the Pew poll. Now, mm -hmm. um, now the socialist left is actually all over the place on the pupil. It doesn't show up in just one area. But increasingly, because of the coalitions of the squad with the Progressive Caucus, mm -hmm. that the DSA's electoral wing is associated with the Progressive Caucus, which is, which is the least popular faction of American politics, period. Right. right. <laughs> right. So that's... Um, during this time period, a bunch of other things have come off the table. Mm -hmm. So all the inroads made into the Latin community have mostly been dropped. Even and people would say at first, oh, it's just uh it's just the Cubanos, it's just the Guasanos and Venezuelan immigrants, it's not everybody. Um, and then we got data out of South Texas. What's happened is the allegiance to the Democratic Party amongst um petite bourgeois immigrants who might have actually who might have actually fairly uh positive orientations to bernie sanders if they were under 35 have largely dropped that allegiance because they no longer think the democrats will ever do anything about immigration so all the talk is now meaningless to them what do you mean do anything about immigration what do they want to be done they would love a liberalization of the border policy and a rationalization they don't they don't want to like the average latino does not want to abolish the borders to be abolished like right. any state but they would love for like it to make sense how many years it took you to get in and like um and these weird these weird ethnic quotas that we have that are left over from the 50s to be relaxed or undone um etc and so forth um that has that is off the table now and so mm -hmm. those politics don't really appeal to um, Latino people. And we need to talk about this a little bit more because talking about these demographics is deceptive. And it's not just based on the ethnic thing. We must look at the class character of, of, of Latin people in the United States. Chicanos tend to be more actual working class in the traditional Marxist sense of the word. Mm. Um, whereas larger immigrant communities tend to be Semi-proletarianized petite bourgeois, actually, because they be and they did not get the the kind of government job advantage that you see with like the black middle class, which mostly like does like government salary work, um, or municipal work. What um because and some of that's some of that may be racism, but a lot of it's actually just like language barrier issues. Mm -hmm. So there, so a lot of those uh um, Latin immigrants went from the gray economy of like doing kind of semi-illegal semi um, construction labor into legal, but petite bourgeois econ economics, small business owners, small, small craftsmen, small shop, mm. truck, truck drivers and people who own their trucks, uh, uh, mm. towers who own their, to their stuff. And so it makes sense 
that while they might be more populist in orientation, that from a class perspective, they're going to, if the Democrats aren't delivering them anything and they're not really doing anything for the working class or the petit bourgeois, that their interest mm-hmm. actually will collide more with that, with that suburban and rural petit bourgeois that, that makes up the majority of the Trump base. Mm-hmm. This is like you can have a class analysis for this. Well, what? Well, uh, Catherine Liu is, is screaming in the back of my head right now, um, asking this question. The progressive wing of the Democratic Party has its own class bias too, and it's not petit bourgeois. But what is it really? The are they the professional managerial class? Is that the least popular class base for? No, politics? because the professional managerial class is not is not actually stuck in in uh, progressive cities. What you, what 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 that actually that's a incoherent class category for one thing. Okay, okay. then who is um, it? Who is it? Who are these really white uh, people who love the progressive policies? That it's people who have you might say that they either have urban petite bourgeois interest, and we need to think about sections of the classes when we talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, or they have uh, cartelized labor aristocratic jobs. And those are actually separate things, but they're tied in very specific economies. They're on. So the that's coast. different from a professional manager to, to the the being part of the labor aristocracy. It's different. Like if you're part of the postal service, are you? Do you have a labor? Yes. Are you part of the labor aristocracy. Yeah. Um, if you are. Um, uh, like my friend Levite, if you're a social worker working on Skid Row, right? Are you part you're of the part of the yeah. You're not an elite though. The idea that there's some elite professional managerial class because of their education doesn't even stand up to income scrutiny, much less. She's still she's scrutiny. still working class because she works for a wage. She mm. doesn't hire, or fire. She isn't exploiting other people's labor. Right. Right. And, and she's she's and she gets paid by the state based on some value function that's dependent right. on the general wage fund this does get a little murky when it comes to federal employees actually because the fed has the ability to print money um <laughs> right. and I, I mean that and like whereas whereas actually speaking like state and municipal level workers are generally dependent on the general wage fund because that's where the taxes that fund them come from whereas mm-hmm. the fed can actually fund itself um and and that 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 complicates things greatly uh, i i am sympathetic to what people mean when they say pmc the reason mm-hmm. why i'm insistent on this though it's an incredibly sloppy class category and right. it people will use it sometimes to mean anybody who has like even an associate's degree which is a lot of the population right. to like millionaires who are one in a hundred you know are mm-hmm. And sometimes they mean um, urban petite bourgeoisie, and sometimes they mean government workers, and sometimes they mean teachers. Um, and these groups have different class interests. If you look at the writings about this, though, from Aaron White Tulu, they actually fetishize the period of uh, the 1950s for the idea of PMC. And that is the period where even the left basically thought capitalism was over from the development of, mop- of monopoly capital. Right. And that we have moved into an either a managerial state, that's Burnham, an administrative state, that's the Frankfurt School, or, um, you know, monopoly capital, which could be socialized, that's Sweezy. So right. that that was a time period in which all these new theories of class percolate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we don't live in that time period. It, right. It, we it, haven't since, like, what, 79? or Yeah. We, we, like, it, like... And so they read neoliberalism, but they read it with these class ideas that were that were also let's let's be frank they were wrong. Right. The MCM circuit still applied in uh, in the sixties. and you right. see the same thing you see now as you saw all these Marxists in the mid sixties who denied the falling rate of profit as a thing because of what happened in World War II, and then the seventies happened and they were caught completely flat footed. Right. And but it's funny, I'm not quite sure why people believe that monopoly capitalism had overcome the contradictions of 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 capital. Um or I'm sorry. Because they uh, didn't think that the decline of the rate of profits of fall was still in place after World War II. I know, but why not? They had just seen it, you know, work. They actually saw it confirmed. 
in 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 World War II because you know you destroyed all the capital and there was a boom. That would be what you would expect, right, to have happen. But, but I think because a lot of people thought that the breakdown thesis was in crisis theory was totally oh. tied to the amiseration thesis. That uh-huh. since it didn't automatically read to revolution, that meant that the that not only was the amiseration thesis about revolution wrong, but so was crisis and or breakdown theory. Yeah, I mean, I think the real truth here is both of us are. I mean, I think you're probably right, but I, I, I it probably it, the unfortunate thing is it's probably super complicated. No, like yeah, every, yeah, everybody. Like I imagine, Marcuse would have his reason, which would be different from. It wouldn't yeah, even, even consistent in the Frankfurt School, but they all right. did cite Pollock. Like I was reading, right. I was going back and looking how much Pollock is in dialectic enlightenment off of a friend of mine's suggestion. I'm like, oh, wow, it's all over this. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's all over the uh, the Burnhamite stuff. It's all over the C.A. stuff. No, no, no. The Burnhamite stuff is all over too. Like if you find, if it's not Pollock, you'll find people citing Burnham. You'll find people citing Sweezy. And that's even true for people like... Um, you and I disagree with this, but I actually ultimately think that's part of what led Christopher Lash down a weird path in the 80s, was right. that they all believed that working class and whatever had changed in some fundamental definition. Lash was willing to defend the working class mm-hmm. against some of the Frankfurt School, but he didn't reject the monopoly capital administrative state thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And he only he only sees a crack in it after he's pretty much given up on the left formally after 1987 with the Kuhn uh, debates. So I want to get back to Christman because this is officially the Christman debrief. But before we do, I can't help but bring in um, this conversation I'm having off to the side that no one knows about it's through Facebook mm-hmm. with my friend, um, Stephen Janecki, who's a, a Trump guy and a mm-hmm. kind of QAnon adjacent guy. And the great fear of build back better, and um, the Great Reset, mm. and Bill Gates, and the vaccine, mm. and all of it is a fear of exactly like the Burnham yeah. or Marcuse hypothesis that we're going to be trapped in a bio state kind of security apparatus, controlled, vaccinated, uh, made made to have no property and no uh, no civil liberties. Um, I mean, you know, ironically, like, it's because the right doesn't actually believe in capitalism enough. Well, yeah, I mean, his his view of capitalism is not, you know, he will say it, things like a business is an organism. Right. Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. all it's all like it, it, it also comes from not understanding what organisms are. But um, <laughs> right. uh, are like uh, business, uh, the market works like level evolution. I'm like, so ninety nine point nine percent of everything dies. Like, <laughs> right, right, yeah. That's like, how evolution works. Yeah, I mean, what he's doing when someone says a, a business is like an organism, what they're saying is um, businesses are natural. You know, mm-hmm. if we just if we just were in tune with the business cycle, like we could be in tune with nature, then we'd all thrive. And, you right, know, right. Have eat oatmeal, have a healthy diet, your business will succeed. I mean, it's just problem, really. But but right. the point is, like, the vision, like the fear. The fear is it's similar. Dope, the, yeah, it's the same fear. And frankly, even I'm like struck mm-hmm. by like COVID restrictions and lockdown and and the turn towards the security state. And I've been struck of- by how resistant liberals are to pointing out that the correlative factors for, for example, um, for COVID deaths, not COVID spread, but COVID mm-hmm. deaths have nothing to do with policy and for example like one of the highest death rate states is florida and one of the highest death rate states is delaware and one of the lowest death rate states is oregon but one that's even lower by half is utah and i point <laughs> and I, I point that out because i'm like the correlative factors is not the lockdown because nobody could have maintained the lockdown for longer than a month particularly with so many people in the essential worker category people got to work so we can even get the basic things so there was no way that lockdown could have worked the way you thought it was we did not nationalize a bunch of stuff to even kind of do what china has attempted to do um, nor do i totally think that was possible under the time constraints and the kind of development we've had and let's talk about the great resignation for a minute because i think oh yeah one, let's do it I, I think it's related. One is the U.S. economy was run on such a razor thin 
uh, efficiency model, that mm -hmm. it doesn't take a lot to disrupt it. Mm -hmm. So while there is a great resignation and people are leaving, but we can't figure out where they're going, there's a bunch of other factors that are actually at play here. They're not getting talked about. One, there's a million excess deaths in the last two years. That's not a small, like, yes, it's older people, but we had a high percentage of people who were putting off retirement. They're probably dead. Um, mm -hmm. If they're not dead, they've gone into retirement early and have also bequeathed their wealth early. All right. We, we can talk about that too. Um, two, um, a lot of women, which were the, which were actually before COVID were the majority of the working class, frankly, um, in the United States actually were in industries that were disproportionately affected by shutdowns. And some of them are not, a lot of them actually, are not planning on going back into the workforce. And we were talking about it, honestly, earlier in the COVID cycle. But when we picked up the great resignation cycle, we did not talk about it. Three, organized labor and strikes have not been particularly efficient. And what you saw during Striketober was a lot of defeats. And the exceptions to that are the areas where you'd expect exceptions to it, like nursing and stuff like that. But even the nursing unions have been kind of more behind the wall than people thought. Mm -hmm. So I, I say all that to, to indicate that, like, yes, there is a great resignation, but it's at a much smaller margin. You've also just lost a lot of workers. And I'm not even getting to the fact that the borders are largely closed. I mean, that sounds all very plausible to me. Has anyone done run the numbers for in a serious way on this? I doesn't. See, I haven't been able to find. I found. I found those numbers separately, but I've never seen them related to the Great Resignation. Like someone trying to figure out, okay, who's actually quitting their jobs, like right. systemically, not just the anecdotes we're getting, but what where because the 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 right for a long time was was blaming this before even the Great Resignation thesis um, was blaming this on you know the expanded unemployment insurance, mm -hmm. except that. You still have the problems out here in Utah where they quit taking ex expanded unemployment insurance by the feds like three to four months earlier than everyone else. Right. So that wasn't a correlated factor. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I, I'm also at a loss to completely explain it. And I do think a lot of people are just choosing to like live it with their families for longer, even more than they already were. Mm -hmm. Um uh, particularly because, yeah, they started seeing wages, but we also started seeing inflation. Um now, I've had battles with people over whether or not QE is part of this inflation cycle or not. Uh, the Fed clearly thinks it is because the other thing that's going to happen with the Fed. Um, now, I don't think this is actually going to fix the inflation problem, but be, because of because of the uh, the patterns of the 80s and the aughts. Mm. But um, they're about to do a, the, the largest fiscal contraction we have ever seen. And it's coordinated between the central banks of Europe, which is going to, the central bank of Europe is saying it's going to be more aggressive than the Fed. The Fed, Japan, which is usually where everyone goes and say, oh, they don't need to run austerity because, oh, look, Japan doesn't do it. And Australia. All right. Furthermore, the yuan, uh, the Chinese. When, you, what are you, when you're talking about fiscal constriction, you're, you're talking about federal spending on what kinds of program so what, yeah, what that's what, monetary policy excuse me yeah excuse me this is monetary policy i, I got i flipped them this is monetary restriction oh, okay. so oh, okay. so what's going to happen is the interest rate's going to go up and the fed's going to quit buying bonds oh, okay all right, all right. so the fed's still buying bonds until march but they're they're actually expected to suck up not just the interest rate which they're gonna the, according to the fed's plan they're going to raise the interest rates five times in the mm -hmm. next year of by half increments. This is not equal to the Volcker shock, but it given given the amount of profitability in the system, it might be even more shocking. Now, ironically, I don't think this is going to lead to a massive unemployment this time because we're because of the issue that we have right now. Mm -hmm. But it will lead to frozen wages. Mm -hmm. Um and frozen wages while inflation probably still goes up for one or two more years. Um, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and no social policy is going to get through, uh, even you know, I'm, I'm imagining levels. my friend, the QAnon guy re responding to this, right? I mean, like it, that fucking looks like a banker's conspiracy to hurt 
the public, doesn't right. it? Right. Yeah, it does. It, it, and they're going to talk about how the Fed needs to go to the gold standard without realizing the gold standard would be even more deflationary. Right, 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 right. Like the, yeah, what's know, causing the pain that they're experiencing. But but a lot of a lot of the conservatives are just like, well, this is just what we have to do. Yes, it's going to suck, but we have to do it. Well, I'd rather they I'd have to. Am I a Democrat? But I, I'd rather this happen for cultural reasons, not because I care who wins in elections. I'd rather this happen under Republican. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I think that the Democratic Party is on pace to, while they will remain actually larger in number, uh, on margin than than the republicans i actually think they are very likely to put themselves in a situation like british labor where they are not a viable national party for a decade or more um i mean that doesn't that doesn't scare me but the reaction of QAnon types kind of scares me like I don't know why. Maybe it's just I don't want to hear from them online. I'm not sure. What no, yeah, wrote, yeah, but, but you're going to see them, you know, what's going to be interesting is are they going to be able to pivot to oppose Republican, even a Trump administration that doesn't do what they want? Because the first part of the Trump administration, Trump could Trump could spew out a thousand things. And if you actually listen to him, he would say contradictory things to get different factions of the conservative coalition, which has been splintered for actually much longer than people realize right. on board. And he was effective at it. Um, people could project onto him because a lot of the stuff, he sounds clear, but he's actually quite vague. Um, and, and the other thing that we have is the left deal with the devil with Biden. And it really has ended up being a deal with the devil has been disastrous. And it's also caused disillusionment and rightly so, actually, with um, people like the squad and all that, because it's been clear mm -hmm. that that the DSA has no purchase over them. And in fact, let's be honest, the Jamal Bowman affair indicates that they have purchase over the DSA against the DSA's own platforms. I'm sorry, I should know what the Joe Jamal Jamal Bowman, Bowman affair, affair was a congressperson, a black congressperson who voted to support Israel despite the uh the D and was affiliated with the DSA, um, mm -hmm. was endorsed by the DSA despite the DSA's plank on uh BDS. Mm -hmm. Um uh the there are rumors that there were calls from certain squad members to the MPC. The MPC has also been more federalized and increases working groups, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Now, let me tell you that this did not come up. This came up on my stream about this, and I actually did a little explainer on it. And on the MPC meeting between the 5th and the 6th, okay, so this is in February. This is brand new news. Um, it came out that 1,200, I oh, know, 12,000 DSA members had, had expired, which means they hadn't paid dues in like six months. Mm -hmm. And Another seven thousand had lapsed, meaning they haven't paid dues in a year, and it takes about it can take a year to a year and a half to show up. So, in between the six months of the convention where they were doing uh, a victory lap around their expansion, and and now they've lost a fifth of their membership. And according to the NPC's own reports, actual attendance at at uh, DSA events, even online, has dropped even more than that. Um. Mm -hmm. So the DSA is remind me again what contracted. NPC is not non-player character. What, no, what NPC is there is is the National Coordination Committee. Okay, um, I forgot yeah. why it's the P, but it, it's it, it is it is the election. <laughs> it's funny that it should be NPC. Right, Anyhow, kind of, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, I forget the exact acronym what it stands for. Uh so the NPC has been expanding its 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 focus on uh, primaries. Um, for progressive Democrats, expanding its focus for lobbying on uh, on um, PROACT and on the Green New Deal. Although I haven't seen stuff for Medicare for All because the Jimmy Dore debates seem to have taken that off the table. Unless the DSA's rank and file, they just responded to that by basically ceding it to the force to vote people, um, which tells you an unfortunate lot about everybody involved there. Mm -hmm. um, and so to get into the inside baseball here, Chrisman's completely right. Uh, it, my only disagreement with him when he was talking in vague terms was that he's like, we should have gone, you know, we have to go where the movement is. And I'm like, yeah, but this movement, while it was materially, pro, you know, 
produced, I agree, and, and based on cycles of experience with like dysfunctional left, recapitulated a lot of the mistakes of the old sectarian left, but in a broader form, and has had the we're literally watching the NGOization of a lot of the left. And then the hashtag left is in an even worse disarray. Like not only, you know, where we forget about the scandals around Occupy collecting money, like in the early 2000 teens, right. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and money disappearing, but this, this stuff with BLM, which even New York magazine, <coughs> not normally a hostile, you know, to progressive liberal causes has pointed out, you know, that not only can every BLM, local have like two franchises that are often opposed there's two or three here in salt lake that are opposed to each other mm. none of whom have anything to the the what be uh black lives Matter global whatever and then the 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 the, the uh black global international whatever I forgot what it is but um which is the one that most people donate to and it's kind of the unofficial official blm national coordinating network where millions of dollars have just disappeared from the records um mm -hmm. So, and and it's liberal sources breaking this out. I suspect because the polls are indicating that even people of color in their base are getting tired of that. Um, that it's not translating to anything and they're kind of tired of just the talk. And so they're abandoning this. And the one thing I've been pointing out as well, I'm hearing like liberal sources propose the Civil War thesis, which is crazy. Good and why that's crazy another day, yeah. but uh, at the same time, you're actually seeing the Republicans begin to slightly diversify more and more each round, um, particularly with Latino and Asian uh immigrants. And and let's talk about that historically because Asian immigrants before 2006 were largely Republicans anyway, they are they were the base, for example, of the conservative party in the in, in the UK, and they're largely this I mean, not the UK in the in the Canada. Um, they were a large, they were the large minority base for, for that movement in so much that there was one. And it's because of the same reasons that you would expect in the U S the immigration quotas on Asian countries are super strict for most of them, except for South Korea. And so the people who come over are rich. It's like, why, why, like, um, I think the most wealthy dem sub demographic after Southeast Asians is Nigerians, which is like, that seems very strange, but it's because of us immigration policy the 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 wealth bar to come for those groups is so high so that's all that's represented here mm -hmm. um and and i think we have the assumption of the democrats is that these that because of the um the racial animus and because of the racial rhetoric of progressives that race would tie all these groups into the democratic coalition basically perpetually thus also ensuring as demographics changed um you know democratic dominance at least on the national level that's not panning out uh the other thing that's interesting that that i've been noticing is gerrymandering stuff has not been as bad for the democrats this time as it was in 2010 but it's not because republicans haven't been aggressive about it it's because republicans and democrats have been largely making deals that that make seats safe Mm -hmm. So it's going to be harder to get rid of incumbents in the future, more than one party dominating the other. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's try to get back to the left here. Cause I mean, I feel like, <clears throat> cause like we need to, like, I need to remind myself and we need to remind each other that, you know, the, the, the only reason to be concerned, I think about which party is doing better or where the uh, ethnic minorities are ending up or, is is because the uh, left is going to go down with the progressives and okay that's what i need to get yeah to, that's right? that's yeah. what i'm getting we have wedded ourselves to a rock right and and the counter response is to try to wed yourselves to a different rock be it conservatives populist national conservatives or whatever mm -hmm. and there are certain left pundits who i'm not going to name here um, but people probably know who I'm talking about, who, who you can literally see them pick up national conservative talking points one minute and then and then literally woke liberal talking points the next when they were consistent opponents of, of like Hillary Clinton only four years ago because they're desperate. They're desperate also to maintain some relevancy over politics as all this passes the left by. Mm -hmm. and, and this is more acute. If you want to see the future, I think look at Britain where... All right, British Trotskyism is effectively dead. Mm -hmm. um, 
yes, the IM, the the IMT, the International Marxist Tendency, and the and uh, the SWP are still exist. They're still they're still kind of large, but they're no longer expanding, and they also no longer have a lot of influence on the left in other countries the way they had historically had. Um, you so so you have that. Um, the DSA is gone from its only known growth for the past uh, decade, basically, and now it's shrinking and fast. I mean, it's shrinking very, very fast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, this yeah. shouldn't really surprise us. It doesn't. Um, but, but it's still, I mean, here's one of the things that we should look at. And this is another thing that I've made people uncomfortable with. Look at what happened with the alt-right. The alt-right actually was readed to Trump opportunistically in a way that Trump's victory almost ensured its, its liquidation. Um, uh, in a in a very fast manner, the moment it overextended itself, particularly in Charlottesville. And yes, there are still yes, there's still neo Nazis out there. But they, like, what's replaced it is QAnon. What's replaced it is is uh, integralism and national conservatism, which does not use racial language explicitly. All right, um, mm -hmm. it has not been and constantly accusing them of being white nationalists when they can keep on putting you know particularly Asian. Uh, and, and Jewish people in front of the in front of the podium is like, no, we're not. You can't. You can't. Like that's not valid. And it's it's it means that like you had absurdities seven months ago with New York Times talking about white nationalists of color. You know, it's <laughs> right, it, right. you know, like it it was. It, it okay. Well, stick. I think we slipped. I think we slipped from one point about how the alt right wedded itself to Trump and therefore mar became marginal as a something to, for the left to think about as a somehow maybe similar fringe group in America. It's a similar fringe group. It was also it ha it does have a class of origins just like we do. Mm -hmm. Um the the US left is one of the things that was very hard to get a good class demographic of the US left because um even people like Jacobin who's who like supposedly hold um Marxist definitions of class will actually use liberal categories when they do polls. Like, so Jacobin's YouGov poll had, like, uh, working class being defined almost solely by income. Mm. Um, and then and then relative income at that. So it's, like, based on the relative income of the area that it is not not in PPP or adjusted for, for like, local prices or whatever. Mm. But mm. but still. Um, so, of course, the DSA is, like, oh, we're, we're like, 60% or 70% working class. Right? Mm. You hear this also with Democrats, because Democrats... Income Coalition is a bunch of people who make under eighty thousand dollars a year who are in urban areas, mm. and then people who make over two hundred thousand. Right, like that's their broad demographic. Uh, the biggest predictor of whether or not you're a Democrat is if you're if you receive social welfare reforms in an urban area. Uh, that's important to say it's urban because this does not translate to suburban rural areas, or or you have a graduate degree. In fact, the, the, it used to be that having a college degree was a predictor of your likelihood your likelihood of being highly politically motivated and tied to the Democrats. But now it is that you have a graduate degree because so many people have college degrees. This is actually part of why I think like the P, the PMC thesis is a completely understandable framing, even though I think it's wrong, because we see a specific sub demographic of people of, of, of actually a cross section of a couple of different classes who are consistently voting for democratic policies and they are tied the left to them because of overlap and rhetoric and history. And well, let's talk about the left for a moment. Cause I want to get back to this. Like, I mean, you're, 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 you're telling me a lot of things that are important and helpful, but I think that's something that you, you said a, a moment or two ago is really important, which is that the left, let's say since 2016 mm -hmm. has tied itself to the democratic party and to the progressive wing of the democratic party. Cause the, the other thing is that there is an, an, a, a wing of the democratic party which um, isn't only the Adolf Reed no. uh, DSA Jacobin part of the Democratic Party, but the there's a part of the Democratic Party that's maybe even like more like Joe Lieberman that is not woke, 
Right. Okay. I mean, the Jim Webb, uh, the old, what we used to call the Jim Webb Democratic Party. I mean, he's right. not relevant anymore either. But, but yeah. they're not part of the coalition anymore, except for the two, except for one of the two conservative Democratic senators who screw everything up for the right. Democrats. Right. But, but my point is that um, we tied ourselves to a specific part of the Democratic Party. Which you say is the least popular, according movement. to Pew Research, right, is the right. least popular. Even though this is what's weird, progressive policies—it's not actually weird if I think about it for a minute. Progressive policies are broadly speaking popular, but the progressive faction of the American left is the least popular, least identified political faction in the country. It right. makes up about, uh, according to Pew, people who are willing to call themselves progressives are aligned with progressives. Are only six percent of respondents. Um, Whereas the God and gun types uh, and the national conservative types are like 17. Now, so this is it. Two, two, two points here, though. The whole Bernie Sanders campaign in the DSA and the and, and Chapo, I think, is we can't underestimate the size of Chapo. You know, it was not, right. it was just some podcasters, but they had an outsized influence, um, I think. And, I, I, I agree, as a Jacobin. Yeah. And so, um, so that whole part of the, movement on the left which was trying to play ball in some way or another with the democratic party to change it to split it as you said you know although that wasn't how uh matt described his aims but that's that was how that I was the it. ackerman plan though that got people who got a lot of people to from the more radical left to liquidate into the dsa right so um anyhow their whole strategy was to be the alternative to that progressive uh, but, but see, they are the, the center of the Democratic Party and the Progressive Caucus are not the same people. Right. And that's but again, this is part of the problem with why progressives are so unpopular. The center of the Democratic Party will use progressive language strategically, though, even when they know there's no way of getting it through Congress. Like, let's say when there's a, a Republican Senate, throw these policies out, knowing that there's no way they'll pass so they're meaningless it's it so is what is the progressive a uh, agenda is it the redistributist like um uh, medicare for all yes ubi that is the progressive it, it is policy. that plus blm plus uh defunding the police and i say defunding advisedly because defunding and abolition are fundamentally different things mm -hmm. um plus um uh uh, open border border reform without defining what it is, and sometimes talking about open borders, sometimes talking about rational border reform, sometimes talking about uh, you know kids in cages, which we all shut up about when the Democratic president's in charge. Um, <laughs> right. so, uh, okay, so but I think that the you know the the Medicare for all, um, you know, uh, eliminate the card check, pro working class. Uh, aspect like of the Bernie Sanders campaign is different than the BLM uh, erratic schizophrenic uh, on the border. It was in 2016. It was not in 2020. Right. Okay. I think that, I think we just have to admit that like, like, um, and um, this is, the other thing that we have to like look at and people will say, Oh, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, Midwestern racism or whatever. Um, is that, uh, Bernie's popularity was particular. He was an unknown factor and he was seen as outside of the democratic party in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people who felt burnt by the Clintonite period and by that, I don't mean Hillary, I mean, Bill, um, and, and Obama and, and Obama. Obama, um, uh, were could see him as a viable outsider figure. That was not true, whether he was workerist or not, by 2020. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely not true when he conceded to Biden. Right. Um, and all those funds went into Democratic Party coffers. Right. So, so yeah. So, okay. So, Let's do some. I'm gonna. I want to keep you for a little while longer, but for a second round here. Um, but let's do a little bit of self reflection here and talk about 
zero books where, you know, I don't work there anymore. You don't work there anymore, but we were doing, we were making left content at that time. How, how, how big a part of the problem were we, do you think? At that I, I think, uh, we were lost and our answer to this problem of being lost, if we're completely honest, was to side up with the people who are also siding up with the progressive Democrats, whether, even though, and I don't mean Chapo here, I actually mean specifically people like Michael Brooks, who, mm -hmm. who I respect and like, and, and was my friend, but mm -hmm. I, I'm just going to say this, saw their, saw their political future as part of this apparatus that was going to be able to change the progressives by the ascent of Bernie. Right. Um, and I was saying, hey, look at Trump. What happened to the truly outsider figures, the true national conservative figures, the paleocons and the and the quasi-fash and all this other stuff in the Trump administration? Motherfuckers, they were all purged in the first year. Right. Like, and you you just forget it. Like, and actually, most of what Trump did, with the exception of tariffs, which he actually did radically change, um, was extensions of things that were either already in the US agenda. Uh, such as like the specific countries with the Muslim ban, like he literally took his countries from the from an Obama list, um, this, that, and the other, which is not to say they were the same thing. They, they but they were based. He did base them in things that were done by other administrations, or they were part of the Republican agenda anyway, such as the sanctions with Iran, removing them, mm -hmm. um, uh, getting out of the the climate accords. Those were all standard Republican planks. The, the exceptions were that he actually, frankly, hit a little bit against the Hawks, although he did throw um, he threw them back into power briefly um, in the Republican Party. And he did all this tariff stuff that was within the within the purview of the administration. And, he did, and then he took an activist stance on appointing judges and not appointing um uh basically um administrative executive functionaries to run all these bureaucracies and what we don't what we haven't admitted to ourselves is mm -hmm. we were to um to the to the mainstream liberal movement what the early tea party was to um, the conservative movement, which was an outsider force that was quickly co-opted. By us, it was by by bureaucratic drift and NGOization, if we are honest, um, uh, into a control opposition that really had no place else to go. And as early as, you know, 2019, before even Bernie had lost, I was saying, look, look at the makeup of Democratic senators you're going to actually empower the most right-wing elements of the Democratic senators. They're going to be the people that make the agenda because they can defect and the Bernieites can't defect to anything. There's just, right. just from a simple game theoretic, there's no place for them to go. They are captured. Right. Um, and, and we walked right into it. Right. But no, but zero books did. And we did you and I, cause I think you said that at the time. Right. What would what would someone what were we to do? I'm asking because even though <clears throat> that's over, I'm not over and I'm I'm going so I'm going yeah. ahead. What did we do? What we did was try to split the baby um, between this progressive left and this new these newer forms of rightism um, that were emerging during the Trump administration. Um and by that, we never tried to split, like, we would never, you would never try to split the baby with, like, an alt-rightist, even though you would have talked to them. But we would talk to Trump skeptic conservatives or whatever and try to see, because of the idea of winning you the You mean, uncommitted, like, Glenn Lowry? Which yeah. When I was talking to Glenn yeah. Lowry? Um, because of the idea of, 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 of winning the uncommitted and trying to get the other side, that's what we did. And then we also had a broad-based approach to left unity where, like, yeah, we didn't always talk about this, but... There was a huge spectrum of stuff that we published and pushed um, uh, within within left purviews. And a, a lot of times everyone focuses on Angela Nagel or whatever, because we did too. Um, but 
there was a huge spectrum of ideas and left stuff that we were pushing off the idea that we no longer, and this was both of us because we talked about it privately, no longer felt, we actually felt like the Bernie movement surprised us because it was even bigger than Occupy, but it also felt so easily co-optable in a way that Occupy was. But I will admit, uh, it didn't feel that way to me in the beginning, even though I was one of the people, even more than you, I was like, Occupy is going to fail, but it's going to be important. How it fails really matters. Right. Like, it's mm -hmm. going to set the tone for a lot of things. Are we going to start investing in the organized left? Are we going to finally finish this period of what we used to call anarcho-liberalism? Because I don't like insulting our anarchism with that, with all that brush, because it's not even mm -hmm. the historical stance of anarchists. It was this weird, like, we're in shock after the fall of the Soviet Union. We're in shock after the reformist, you know, all these former Maoists and stuff who ended up neoliberal. Um, I mean, we forget this, but like, like it wasn't just trots becoming neoconservatives. It was also like Maoist in California becoming neoliberal Democratic mayors mm. um, and and advisory people. I mean, like, like so we were the 90s was in shock from that. We end the shock with Occupy. Um, it's clear that this this fear of organization um, is a problem, but we had forgotten because we hadn't been large enough to have been organized since the 60s that bureaucraticization and capture was perfectly possible the way we were going. Mm -hmm. And thus we walked straight into it. And, and where I'm sympathetic to Chrisman is it's a natural mistake from the mistake of the 90s, which themselves was a natural mistake from the mistakes of the anti-revisionist mm -hmm. 60s, uh, 70, particularly 70s, hardcore sectarian Marxist left that that was the rump of the new left that survived longer in an age of reaction. Okay, listen, I want to ask you to stay on. I'm going to set up a second uh, um, uh, stream. And we'll do a pop. Uh, we'll do a parrot room for pop the left here. But I, but um, and here's what we're going to talk about. And it's risky for me, but I think it's worthwhile. Uh, while I am not a member of the Platypus Affiliated Society and never have been, I have been uh, getting uh, some help from people who are adjacent uh, or within that uh, milieu. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems to me like what you were just talking about was remembering the mistakes of the left and the history of the left, which is what the platypus affiliated society is supposedly about. Now I know you've been a big critic of the platypus affiliated society. Yeah, but I was former, also a member, like... a former member. Right. So what I thought we might talk about in the, in the parrot room was how, cause it seemed to me that that is a useful thing. I mean, I don't want to just go with the wind and it's obviously, you know, it's right now I am in a position where it is natural that I would believe that that is the right move to make to, to try to create that kind of project to where you're investigating the history of the left. But we've been doing that. We were doing that in pop left or we're trying to for a while. Yeah. I mean, we but, started this in, in the first Obama administration. People forget right, how long. Right, we yeah, have been doing this. Um, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, wait. Yeah. It wasn't even his second term, was it? No. It was our second episode was was uh, us and someone who went, we won't mention anymore. Um, and it actually is not, it was not, it, it isn't even in the archives as you can find them. It's a super rare episode where we're commenting on what's likely to happen uh, with Obama's victory in, in 2012. Right. And, um, and it was, it, it's wild to me when I think back, because also like when we're commenting on that left, like I went back, I, I, I went back even recently and reread the transcript. Somebody transcribed all those for us. And I was like, wow that left was a hangover from the nineties. Like those arguments that were, that were like settling on early pop, the left or arguments that are like from zine culture in 1999. Um, right. and, or even earlier. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, some of them go back to the eighties and, mm. and that, that was the, we were still stuck in that milieu when we started this. Because that's where everybody was. And the other thing is we were going through the trauma of the anti-war left um, and trying to like refocus on class. Mm -hmm. And and um and you and I have very different trajectories uh on that. We can talk about that in the parrot room. Mm -hmm. But 
that was where we were coming from was this issue driven left of of the of the Gen X generation of which I was like the youngest possible member. Right. Um uh and I think people when people talk about how reactionary Gen Xers are and and I don't say this as a slight to you um, I think I think demographically speaking, it's actually true at this point. But I always say, like, but look at why they are. Like, there is a material reason why they would not buy into the left of the millennials that you're just not looking at, and they remember shit and grow up in a time of stuff that you didn't grow up in, mm-hmm. and you're not contextualizing. You know, you're not treating generations as actually living in different material conditions when they're when they're habits are formed and also having different wealth patterns later on in life because of it. Yeah. Look, I, I, I am in the, in the parent room. Not only are we going to talk about the platypus affiliated society, but I am again forced to defend generation X and I, and I resent <laughs> being forced into this position. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll give 